Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demonoze, demons, by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. In chapter 12, the hostility, the animosity, the anger has been building to this incredible crescendo. The religious leaders accuse Jesus and his followers, remember, of breaking the Sabbath laws in verses 1 through 22. And now the religious leaders explain that the powers that Jesus possess comes from Satan. You should pause for a moment and think in your brain the implications of that. If Jesus' power comes from Satan then certainly you can't believe him and you can't trust him and you can't love him. The Lord Jesus will point out that their accusations make no sense whatsoever. If Satan is fighting against Satan, his kingdom is hopelessly divided and has to come to ruination. Jesus also points out that if the unbelieving Jews are able to cast out demons are they also in league with the devil Jesus also points out that he could never cast out demons unless he had first overcome Satan as Jesus has already demonstrated in Matthew chapter 4 the religious leaders reject Christ's argument which is going to result in what's been called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin at the end of the chapter. The wicked religious leaders have witnessed firsthand the miracle power of Jesus. They attribute the miracles to the supernatural work of Satan and their sin isn't just simply a sin 
of ignorance or a sin of misunderstanding. Their wicked words are evidence of their wicked, hard heart. And this sin is willful and persistent. This is the kind of unbelief that says, I won't accept Jesus under any circumstance. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus is healed a man with a deformed hand. Now Jesus heals a man with a demonized heart. Look at verse 22. The king's power proved. It says, then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. By now you're probably aware that the Bible teaches that there are supernatural beings that inhabit this universe. There are invisible creatures. There are invisible creatures who can both do good, angels, and harm, demons. And we should quickly note several things. The man was brought to Jesus. We're not told by who, possibly family members, possibly friends. We begin there. there. These people knew that something was wrong. He was blind. He couldn't speak. He was in trouble. And so they bring their troubled family member to Jesus and the compassion of Jesus extends to one who is characterized as being possessed by demons. And the Lord Jesus' power is immediate and absolute. This isn't a thing where Jesus goes, hey, guess what? Everybody, we're going to have to pray and fast for 60 days in order to bind and and." And destroy this invisible power. Jesus' power is absolute. Jesus' power is immediate. Jesus' power is invincible. And don't you ever forget that. Particularly if you have a family member who is hurt. And who's in trouble. Who lives in a constant state of blindness. Towards the things of God. It would seem that the only necessary thing that, that had to happen was a willingness on the part of the people who loved this person to bring them to Jesus. And the reason why this is so important, it goes to the heart of our story. One of the reasons that Jesus came into the world was to conquer Satan, to break Satan's power over people to break the chains that bind people that keep them blind and in bondage and of course there is the skeptic the unbeliever who in his or her mind right at this very moment is thinking well how do you know that that power was real or imagined how do you know how do you know that this person didn't have schizophrenia how do you know that this is just some made up story in order to explain some implausible unbelievable event 
The text says that the man was blind and that he was mute and that the people closest to him knew that he was blind and, and that he was, is, was mute. And I'm going to suggest to you that most people who are really blind and mute aren't faking it, that there is a real powerful difficulty that's present, that's known to family and friends, and they've already come to grips with the fact that only Jesus can help them. But it begs yet another question. Are there invisible spirits? Yes. Can demons cripple people? The Bible's answer is yes. Human beings without Jesus are often blind, disabled. According to the New Testament, the presence of demons can sometimes cause insanity. There's a long list in the Bible, Matthew 8, 28, Mark 5, 15, Luke chapter 8, verse 27 through 29. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that all mental and emotional distress is motivated demonically. But we also can't make the mistake of suggesting that there's never a demonic component. In the New Testament, one child would throw himself or herself into the water or fire. In Luke chapter 13, verses 11 through 17, the implication being that invisible forces of darkness were motivating people to kill themselves, destroy themselves. The Bible describes a demonic army that will rise up at the end of days and commit grievous torture upon unsaved mankind during the great tribulation period in Revelation chapter 9. According to the Bible, demons have interacted with people in the past. We have every reason to believe that they interact in the present that they will interact in the future. Satan attacks the body, according to the book of Job, the mind, according to the book of Genesis, where he speaks to Eve and, and deceives her. Satan can speak and address the body and the mind and the will as he manipulates, confuses, and provokes David. He can address the heart and the conscience like he does to Joshua. Satan's weapons are and continue to be lies and suffering and pride and accusation. And in verse 23, it says, and all the multitudes were amazed. And they said, could this possibly be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? And by the way, there are always, there are always, there, were, there are always and forever two reactions to the Messiah's power. The first, amazement. And you should note that their question is filled with hope. Could this be the son of David? Is this the son of David? Is this the promised Messiah? The reason why this becomes important for each and every one of you is because the question implies something that always takes place. Maybe yes, maybe no. Is it true? Is it possible? Is it probable? He might be, he might not be. 
whatever else was true, the people couldn't help but notice that Jesus was doing things that the priests and the elders and the religious leaders have been teaching for months and years. They had been teaching that when the Messiah would come, what kind of a Messiah would he be? When the expected Messiah really shows up, what will happen? What will take place all around us? Isaiah, Jeremiah predicted that blind people would see and that deaf people would hear and that the mute would be able to speak and the diseased would be returned to wholeness and that the dead would come back to life. And so they're thinking if this guy isn't the Messiah, what will it be like when the real Messiah shows up? Jesus didn't seem overly concerned about the Roman oppression and the political posturing. He didn't seem to be organizing a grassroots effort to build an army or mobilize against Rome. He seemed to have an extraordinary compassion for people who were broken and people who were sick and people who were weak and people who are afflicted and people who are injured, people who were traumatized in their heart and in their soul. And his message seemed more directed towards personal salvation than national deliverance. And the religious leaders, they epitomized the second reaction. This radical skepticism, this bitter rejection In verse 24, it says, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doesn't, he he doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. I want you to think about what you just read. This isn't just simply a hard-hearted denial of Jesus' power. It is that. It's that, but it's more. It's a wicked attempt to shatter people's hopes and redirect them away from Jesus. Don't miss that in the text. You see, it's very, very different to just simply say, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is the Lord and I don't believe that the Bible's true and I don't believe that the gospel's real. Imagine when you say that, you're telling every single person who's loved by Jesus, who's been changed by Jesus, who's been forgiven by Jesus, who's been reconciled to God and given the promise of heaven that it's not true. That you're living a lie and you're living in some dark fog of self-deception But I'm going to suggest something else. It's a wicked attempt on the part of the religious leaders to draw the people back to themselves. Because 
if Jesus is who he really says he is, and if Jesus can really do what Jesus seems to be able to do, they're going to lose their position with the people, and they're going to lose their power with the people, and the religious leaders will make an emotional appeal, not a reasonable appeal, not a rational appeal. They're making an emotional appeal that the power that Jesus possesses comes from Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, the dark prince, Satan, the reason why, again, this all becomes important is because the religious leaders know something amazing has happened, something supernatural has happened. A, a, a person who couldn't speak now can speak. A blind person who couldn't see is in fact seeing. They have no explanation for what's happened, so they still have to come up with an explanation. And guess what? Your unbelieving family and friends still have to come up with an explanation of what's happened to you. Bob's gone off the deep end. Mary's gone off the deep end. Tom and Mindy have gone off the deep end. How could they, you know what, how they got suckered into this, who knows. They went to Calvary Chapel, they read the Bible, they, they heard the story about Jesus, and then they believed it. Can you believe they went to this church that's a cult, and that's, I'm, I'm guessing that they've been brainwashed. They still have to come up with an explanation of what's happened to you. The religious leaders are at an absolute loss to refute that something has happened. The issue isn't whether or not a miracle has happened. The issue is the source of that miracle and the power of that miracle and the origin of that miracle. The people were open to the possibility that Jesus might be the Jewish Messiah. And the religious leaders at this point believe that there is no, I repeat, no way possible that Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah. And so it remains even to this day. There are people who say, is it true? Is it possible? Is it possible what the Bible says about Jesus? Is it even remotely possible? And then there are people who say it's not remotely possible. Whatever the explanation is, however we characterize Jesus, whatever conclusion we come to, it can't be that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity who came from heaven, who took the form of a human being, who died on the cross for sin, who rose from the dead because people don't come back to life. And so they're faced with an extreme problem. Was Jesus sent by Satan on a mission to deceive? Or was he sent by the Father on a mission to believe? The evidence of supernatural power? Overwhelming. The enemies of Jesus are forced to come up with an explanation of what happened. 
And their explanation also becomes a revelation of the obstinate, obstinate, recalcitrant, which means hardened, unwillingness to believe. This is the kind of unbelief that's unwilling to surrender to Jesus no matter how clear and convincing the evidence. This is obstinate belief, unbelief. This is malignant unbelief. This is not just obstinate and malignant unbelief. This is the kind of obstinate and malignant unbelief that's willing to hurt people in order to continue in the unbelief. Unbelief is not the cause of sin. Sin is the cause of unbelief. And so we see the king's first powerful argument. A divided allegiance destroys. Look what it says in verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus points out that if what they're saying is true, a civil war exists In the unseen realm of Satan, Jesus is so loving. He is so patient. He is so kind. If it were me, I would have just said, toast. I would have just said, you you know what, guys? You guys are toast. Here's what I'm going to do. To prove my messianic claims, I'm just going to turn you into a pillar of salt, into a crispy critter. Everybody's going to look around and they're going to go, I guess Jesus really is who he says he is. End of discussion. But Jesus is loving and Jesus is kind and he is gracious and generous. He loves people. He's looking for reasons not to hurt people, but to save people, to minister to people. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God and he's reasoning with them. The Bible in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, God himself says to the people, he says, come, let us reason together, you and I, though your sins be like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. The statement provides a timeless lesson Not only about the compassion and the love and the mercy of Jesus, but it also provides a timeless lesson about the dangers of division. It was Abraham Lincoln who cited this famous passage in the catastrophe that was known as the American Civil War. Over half a million Americans died in this horrible situation. This deep division that occurred in our country because of the wicked sin of slavery. And this wicked sin was going to require an awful solution. And Abraham Lincoln knew it. As he saw the country torn apart. As 50,000 people died in a single day in Antietam. And a half a million were eventually killed. And every single person in America was affected by this horrible tragedy. 
This is a universal truth. Division leads to separation, always. And ruin, always. And this is why the most wicked, perverse, evil sin that can come upon a church is division. A divided church can't be a united church. And this is why there's stark warnings in the Bible for people in the church who divide the church. Division in homes, churches, countries, tear the fabric of peace, tear people apart. Satan's schemes are well documented in the scripture. He wants to make us ignorant of God's will. He wants to make us impatient with God's will. He wants us to act independent of God's will. He wants to indict our conscience and heap guilt and condemnation on our hearts so that we will abandon God's will. And so doesn't it make sense that God loves you? And doesn't it make sense that God wants to deliver you? And so Jesus is making an appeal. The appeal that he's making is this. Why would Satan, who is in the business of ruining people's lives, want to redeem this person's life? Why would Satan, who is in the business of blinding people, open this person's eyes? Why would Satan, who is in the business of trying to keep you, to keep your mouth shut, loose your tongue so that you could speak and describe his love? What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What concourse hath Christ with Belial? It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Jesus is offering the religious leaders this statement. Is God's Messiah going to come and build God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom? And so the king offers a second powerful argument. Denying Jesus isn't consistent or logical. In verse 27 it says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. In that simple statement, Jesus is challenging the religious leaders. He's basically saying, help me understand something. Why do you embrace and accept the claims of your own people and you're quick to deny me? When you see good things happen, why can't you attribute it to a good source? When you see good things happening, why would you attribute it to an evil source? It would appear that there were Jews who were performing exorcisms. Later we, by the way, read that there were those who cast out devils in Jesus' name, yet they didn't follow him in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. And you remember the response of Jesus' own disciples. They said, these people aren't following us and you should make them stop. And Jesus said, what are you saying? 
If these people are casting out demons in my name, they're going to be hard-pressed to be against us. When a person says God loves you and Jesus loves you, when a person says that according to the Bible, God's willing to forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you, it's hard to be mad at that person. There were so-called exorcists who were unfaithful to Christ in Matthew 7, 22. And after the resurrection, there were Jewish exorcists who traveled about using the name of Jesus in a superstitious or, or magical way in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 13. So what is Jesus in, in, in effect saying? The good works of others are acknowledged. His good works are denied. Their good works are not attributed to evil, but his good works are attributed to evil. Think about it. The works of Jesus, numerous, spectacular. John 21, 25. If all that you could possibly be known of everything that Jesus did, the whole world would be filled with the knowledge of his goodness. If his works are the good works of God, his power, his works. If his works of power are works of evil, then why are others' works good? If his works were the good works of God, then his claim would to be the Messiah is bound to be true. Because God wouldn't give supernatural, persistent, pervasive power to a liar and deceiver. There's only one logical, consistent conclusion that you can draw if you're trying to be even a tiny bit honest with yourself. That his works are the works of the Spirit of God. And so in verse 28, he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God... Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus can really do what he says he can do, then there's hope. There's grace. There's mercy. And so we discover something. In verse 28, it says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a classic syllogism. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's logical and coherent. The religious leaders have already conceded that there is a kingdom of God. The religious leaders have already conceded that there is such a thing as demons. They've already conceded that Jesus has cast them out and he's demonstrated the absurdity of their argument that some kind of demon-on-demon -demon violence is taking place in the invisible realm. And he's saying, that's absurd. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom. 
the kingdom of God has shown up. What does this mean for the religious leaders? Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Jesus claims the kingdom has come. The religious leaders are in danger, not only of resisting God, but resisting his Messiah. And by resisting God and resisting the Messiah, they're also refusing to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so it is with each and every person who resists and rejects Jesus. This is what the Bible means when it says no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus came with the word of God. He imparts the grace of God. He gives the indwelling spirit of God. And so the king's third argument, a strong man has to be bound. Look what it says in verse 29. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he plunders his house? It's in certain parts of the world, if you have an opportunity to travel, Mary and I, not too long ago, we went to Chihuahua. And if you go to Chihuahua, there's a rich people's section of the town and they have little homes that are built for safety and security. They're like little fortresses. If you go to the parts of the Middle East and and Eastern Europe and Africa where the security is at a minimum, people build gigantic houses with gigantic compounds in order to try and keep the evil away. Cartels and drug lords employ small armies to protect themselves against rival leaders and legitimate governments. So who's the strong man in Jesus' illustration? It's Satan. Who or, or what are his goods? They are those who are bound by Satan and controlled by Satan and manipulated by Satan and hurt by Satan. Satan rules in darkness. He's pictured in the Bible as a roaring lion prowling the earth, seeking whom he may devour. In John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 31, it says, Now is judgment upon this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. The appearance of Jesus was in part to destroy Satan's plan. Satan's plan has always been simple and subtle. Doubt God's word. Doubt God's goodness. Sow seeds of discouragement. Look to yourself to be the solution to your problem rather than God. Make the wrong seem attractive so you will want it more than you want God. And so the Lord comes to destroy the works of the devil. That's what we see in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And when we look at the sheer number of miracles in John 21, 21, when we look at the overwhelming supernatural nature of those miracles and the ultimate goodness that's expressed in what Jesus has done, How could you come to any other conclusion? 
The illustration is a powerful argument of Christ's ability and strength. Jesus enters the strong man's house. Jesus binds him, robs him. You might not like that, that, that term because you might, you know, I don't feel comfortable thinking about Jesus stealing. Well, let me help you think it through. Jesus is simply taking back what always belonged to him. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Your children don't belong with him. Your grandchildren don't belong with him. You don't belong with him. Your family and your friends don't belong with him. Jesus stealing? Preposterous. No. Jesus claims victory over Satan. Jesus has withstood Satan's temptations. Jesus has exercised his ability to take back what belongs to him. And so the passage paints a picture of a conflict between the forces of evil and the forces of good and the forces of darkness and light, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And because the, it is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, there's no middle ground. You are in one kingdom or the other. In order to fight in Christ's kingdom, you have to resist and oppose Satan's kingdom. And so the fourth argument in verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who doesn't gather with me scatters abroad. There's no more, you know who's the worst person to watch the Bronco game with? The person who hasn't picked a side. Hey, who are you for? Panthers. Broncos. And then you have that other person. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And you, Pick a side. <laughs> I don't want to pick a side. You have the luxury of not having to pick a side. But when it comes to Jesus, you have to pick a side. The one option that Jesus... Jesus rejects. This isn't Gino. This isn't Gino saying you have to pick a side. This is Jesus saying you have to pick a side. There's no neutrality. There's no indecision. Jesus makes it clear that indecision is in fact decision. And the way Jesus interprets the decision is you are against me. Jesus' position is if you don't accept me, you, you've made the choice to reject me. You've either accepted Christ or you're an antagonist. The Lord both defines and determines your identity in relationship to him. Jesus isn't your LinkedIn partner. He isn't your Facebook friend. He isn't a political candidate. He isn't a religious preference. He isn't even a sports team. Jesus insists on loyalty and accountability because he's the king of the universe. And so what is the reference to gathering and scattering? It might be a picture of a shepherd or a farmer. He who is not with me is against me and he who doesn't gather with me scatters. What is he saying? Again, each involves gathering the sheep, 
for the shepherd, the crop for the farmer. Each is involved in scattering the sheep or the harvest. One person stands with Jesus, trusting him, loving him, or stands against him. Others say, I just want to be undecided. I just want to be unconvinced. I just want to be unpersuaded. Jesus doesn't leave you that option. No servant can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate the one or love the other, or else he's going to cling to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, it says, See, I've set before you this day life and good and death and the evil. Later in the passage in Deuteronomy 30, 19, we read, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. That's exactly what Jesus does. He sets before you the table. And he says, choose. You know, what cannot be hoped for cannot be believed. What cannot be hoped for cannot be believed. C.S. Lewis remarked rather whimsically, amiable and agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. For me, they might as well be For me, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. It's true. Mice don't look for cats. Criminals don't look for cops. They're trying to avoid them. And for many sinners, they're trying to make sure that they never bump into Jesus. But even those born and raised in an environment of faith can eventually be led into darkness. Hugh Hefner was raised in a minister's house. Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood. Mao Tse Tung got his education from a Christian missionary. The very light of Christ can become darkness. In what way? A.W. Tozier wrote, quote, No one rejects Christ on philosophical grounds, but the rejection of God's light brings the worst kind of darkness. Satan wants to keep you in the dark. Jesus wants you to come into the light. Satan will serve a Super Bowl party today. A banquet of lies, a smorgasbord of suffering, a pantry of pride, and all the accusations and rejections and rationalizations that you need to stay safely away from God and remain in bondage. But Jesus offers the inspired word of God and the imparted grace of God. And the indwelling spirit of God. And his own intercession. Pleading. 
His sacrifice, grace, mercy, forgiveness, hope. Can you imagine if you live in a world, imagine this is the world you live in, that you believe that Jesus offers evil and death. If that's the world that you live in, then you can never know him and you can never love him and you can never embrace him. But this is exactly what the religious leaders have done. They have made a commitment that Jesus' life is really death and that Jesus' goodness is really wickedness. And when you come to that conclusion and you believe that conclusion and you forever live in that conclusion, you can never come out of that kind of darkness. But there's hope for each and every one of you. Everyone who will love him and believe him and trust him Is that you? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my voice would ask and answer that very hard question. Is Jesus who he says he is? Can he do what he said he can do? Is my life filled with darkness and pain, distance and difficulty? Am I ready to turn from my sin and turn to the Savior? Am I ready to experience forgiveness and hope? Is that you? Just raise your hand real quick and I'll pray for you. You can experience his love and his life, hope and grace. Is that you? Just slip up your hand. I'll pray for you. Heavenly Father, I hope and pray that your presence in this place is real and the decisions that each and every person has made is a decision for you to walk with you, to love you, to believe in you. And Lord, we pray that we can walk into a future filled with hope. And so Lord, again, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for life. We thank you for goodness. We thank you for the indwelling spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.